This is an ABC podcast. Satire is society's release valve, and it allows us to reflect on just about anything. Healthcare, race, the economy, religion. Satire has the ability to hold a mirror up to the parts of society we'd often rather not see. It's been around for thousands of years, but is its power dwindling? In a digitised world with an increasing appetite for outrage, what does the future of satire look like? I'm Edwina Stott, and this is Future Tense. On Thursday, WA opposition leader Zach Kirkup announced his daring new election strategy, give up. Two weeks out from the WA state election and tonight we already have a concession of defeat. The opposition leader admits he's lost, saying 2021 is not his time. Come on, Zach, you're, you're meant to play the underdog, not the six feet underdog. Seriously, you can't be that far behind. New figures show Labor leading the Liberals 68 to 32, two-party preferred. Premier Mark McGowan also... At first glance, today's satire is cutting edge. But of course, it's an art form that's been around for thousands of years. Oftentimes people talk about satire emerging from ancient Rome. There was quite a few different satirists, but the two that tend to get spoken of most are Juvenal and Horace, and they had two different approaches to satire. Horace, he, he we talk about Horatian satire. His satire is kind of, um, it's a bit more like friendly banter. So he wanted to draw attention to when people were being stupid or ridiculous or dangerous, but he didn't want them to be particularly upset by it. He wanted them to be able to laugh at themselves and move on, so it's quite gentle whereas juvenile satire is much harsher, to the point where you know, there are myths coming from ancient Rome that, that juvenilian satire, if it was effective, would lead the target to hang themselves. That's Adam James Smith. He's one of the directors of the York Research Unit for the Study of Satire. There are other accounts now as to where satire comes from. There was some stuff in the 1950s and 60s that, that went back to sort of ancient Irish satire. There was these ideas of this idea that you'd have like rhyming poets who could, again could commit fatal violence on people. There's the, this idea of being rhymed to death. Jonathan Swift talks about this in the 18th century, that you know people are wary of satirists because you could be rhymed to death. While we may no longer believe in being rhymed to death, satire still holds a lot of power. I think one of the most common justifications from satirists is that they are trying to do an intervention in society. They're trying to change or stop something for the public good. If you like, something's dangerous or ridiculous, that one way to take the power away from that or draw, draw the public's attention to it is through satire. But then there are other interesting ones. So some satirists talk about satire as, as being a kind of medicine or a cure. This one makes me laugh. So it's the idea that satire is, is a kind of bad medicine that, and the satirist is like a doctor that administers that medicine. So if you've been stupid or ridiculous, it's going to be a bit painful for a moment, but you have to take the satire and ideally that will lead you to change your ways and you'll be better off for it. So, which is great, isn't it? I'm insulting you for your own good. Thanks for your time tonight. Good, good evening, Brian. Is it Brian? It is Brian. Good evening, Brian. Okay, can I begin with quite a simple question? Yes, I wish you would. We like those ones, Brian. We've got a government here in Australia. Oh yes, I'm familiar with the Australian situation. It costs a huge amount of money. It's actually the main news story here, but it uh, doesn't do anything. What do you mean it doesn't do anything, Brian? It must do something. Does it meet, for yes, example? Yes, it meets. Yes, okay. of course. So it's not true to say it doesn't do anything, Brian. The government was elected, was it, Brian, by the people? 
Well, the previous government was voted out, put it that way. I see. Kerensky. One that I've seen more commonly recently, and there's, a, there's an academic in England called Dieter Del Kirk, who's written a book called Satire, Comedy and Mental Health. He sort of looks at the ways in which throughout history, satire has been, has been talked about in a way that we might refer to today as, as benefiting mental health. So in the one sense, it's cathartic to engage in satire or therapeutic for the satire, a bit like juvenile to say, like, I've done this because I can't help it. So for the satirist to be able to actually say, look, this is ridiculous and we shouldn't have it, even if that's not going to actually affect any material change, it's therapeutic for them to say it and it's therapeutic for the reader to read it. So it becomes about catharsis. And the final one, which I think is the most obvious one, is entertainment. It's just, fu- it's just funny, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes. It's important to point out the distinct difference between satire and comedy, though. Okay, satire is different to comedy in that to say that something's satirical means it's making an argument. That's Robert Fidian. He's a professor in English at Flinders University. Comedy can merely make you feel good. And when I say merely, obviously, I think that's an important thing. Whereas satire always has a purpose. Comedy saying something about the form of things and satire is saying something about the purpose. So you can have satirical comedies and because they often live in the same texts, we think of satire and comedy as sort of the same thing because they both make us laugh. But the satirical dimensions of texts are the things that often actually say fairly harsh things. Robert says that when it comes to politicians, satire is most effective when there are already doubts lingering around their reputation. While a public figure, while a politician is strong politically, it doesn't make that much difference. It doesn't strip any paint off them. But it can really have an impact on them when they're showing some sort of weakness. It can certainly help bring someone down if they're already doing it. It's not just politicians who can face satire's wrath, though. It's a lens that can force all of us to take a good, hard look at ourselves. And as Australia's population becomes more diverse, we're seeing that lens evolve. Dr Jessica Milner-Davis is an honorary research associate at the University of Sydney. Our societies are becoming much more diverse, which is great. But it means that people have to learn that their cultural conventions about how they joke, how they eat, how they dress, all kinds of things, rub up against other cultural conventions. So how do we manage to harmonise these things, who changes, who adapts, who doesn't. And that agenda is playing out in terms of humour. What is the Australian tradition of humour, which is unbelievably permissible, it's probably the most permissible in the world, but how does that culture rub up against, for example, the culture of our Australian-born Chinese, of our immigrants who are coming from the Middle East, of the refugees who arrive? How much should they change? How much should they adapt? So that's one issue. The second issue, I think, is increasing sensitisation awareness, which is also good, about minority groups and groups of people who have suffered from disability of some kind. I don't just mean physical disability, I mean all kinds of disability. So if this is going on and we want to be respectful and understanding, then the question of many traditional jokes and joking patterns is called itself into question. Is this fair? Is this not fair? And the newly evolving um, convention here is that if you are a member of that particular affected group, then go for it. You can joke about your own group. But if you are not a member, you shouldn't certainly pretend to be a member 
as some artists have done, but also you shouldn't joke about them because you don't really understand what that particular group of society has been through. To recap, the two things that I think we're grappling with are this increasing diversity of, of the culture and the increasing awareness of disadvantage and how we should deal with it. And the comedians are at the cutting edge. Satire is a sign of a healthy society, keeping authority in check. And it's at its most effective when everyone's voice is included. But there's one voice in Australia that has historically been deemed not to be funny. I'm actually writing a PhD focused on Indigenous humour, but you, it immediately brought me to a quote that a famous uh, writer, Auntie Lillian Holt, who's passed away now, she was doing research in Indigenous humour in within the community. Her quote from a filmmaker that thought that Indigenous humour was incongruous, he didn't think of Indigenous people as having a sense of humour, which is... <laughs> which is funny to us because it's very, very prevalent in our community. Hello, I'm Angelina Hurley, an Aboriginal woman from Brisbane, born and bred. Um, my heritage from the Gurang Gurang mob from Gladstone, Bundaberg area. I'm also Birra, which is Burdekin River area. <laughs> There's four because I have two grandparents with two different sides each. So Mananjali people from the desert area and the Gamilaroi people from St George. Angelina Hurley says satire is a vital tool to resist racism and oppression. It enables us to speak back to these things, you know, to, to, to address racism and injustices within our community in a way that, you know, that we've done within our community ourselves the whole time. We need satire as a form and comedy and humour as a satire, as a form of social reform. It uh, weeds out weaknesses. It ridicules ridiculous situations, if it's new to the non-Indigenous ear and if Indigenous humour may annoy or, you know, anger or offend non-Indigenous audience, it maybe it's, you know, hitting a bit close to home for them. You know, it's, it's what it's supposed to do. And how important is it that we recognise satire as a valuable tool for the future? For Indigenous people, it, it's a different medium that gives us a voice, that sees us visible, that have has a sort of representation across the board, not just in isolated bits. You know, there's these horrific stereotypes and myths and, you know, misunderstandings about Indigenous people, you know, that to us are quite mind-boggling that people would still think but still do that all black people live in the North Territory and there's none down south and, you know, you look like this and you don't look like an Aboriginal person and, and your identity and your heritage, like hey, all, all, of that, all of that sort of stuff. So it's important for our voices to be heard, our narrative, our perspectives to be out there. We've been doing that in a comedic, humorous way within ourselves as a form of survival in our communities for ages. And for the wider, broader communities to hear that and experience that is only an education for them, and an education that they need to have that's still missing and everything from our education system to our daily interactions with people with mainstream Australia. The Lord has spoken unto me, and he hath given me ten commandments to give to his chosen people. What is it, Hezekiah? Um, like, those laws are great as far as commandments go. Yeah. They're top-notch, but we've got a few of our own. Can I read them out? Go ahead. 
Thou shalt not go to thy brother's house on payday to ask for a loan. But if thou does, then thou must pay back on thine own payday. What else have you got? If thou was shouted by his brother at a tavern, then thou must shout back on the very next round. <laughs> You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. There's no doubt that when done well, satire can be incredibly effective. But it does face challenges for the future. Social media can strip it of its nuance, causing things to be taken literally. Adam Smith from the York Research Unit for the Study of Satire says this is a big threat for the future. Part of satire is it uses exaggeration as its critique. So the satirist will either use a character or an exaggerated version of themselves to point something out and they'll maybe use an extreme example to make their point. But when everyone is reading everything literally, that becomes a statement attributed to the author as though that's what they actually think in exactly that way. So you lose the ability to do the exaggeration, which is a fundamental part of the satire. Everyone says this, don't they? But it's a very common thing for that it's easy for things to be taken out of context or severed from their source. So I think it's much, it's quite dangerous to do satire in some senses because of that. A good instance of this is royal satire. So throughout the history of satire, the royal family or any royal family, but I mean, I can speak to it in a British context, have always been an open goal basically for satirists because satire always attacks things that are ridiculous or that have a lot of power. The justification for the royal family has been shaky since at least the 17th century. So satirists were saying, like, is this person a good king or should they have this much privilege? Should they have this much money? Don't you think they're stupid? Some in the 18th century, some monarchs like King George III were able to actually use that satire to build their reputation and become like household caricatures in a way that's benefited them. But at the moment, with what's happening with, um, well, with the princes and everything, there's a concern that making fun of the royal family is causing harm to the royal family. So it's sort of, is it affecting Meghan's mental health? Or what's it going to be like for Archie when he grows up? Or George, there was a satirical cartoon, wasn't there, on HBO Max recently, which called, I think it's called The Prince, isn't it? and it's the world through the eyes of Prince George, which is a stock satirical device where you have a child pointing out how ridiculous everything is. Like that, that goes, again, that goes back to the 18th century. But a lot of the discourse around that was like, it's beyond the pale to attack a child. Like you shouldn't be satirizing a child. But it's not just any child. It's the child of the monarchy. And the child wasn't the target. It was the lens through which all the other things were satirized. So yeah, so punching up, which is something that satirists tend to need to do to justify what they're doing, becomes much more difficult in an environment where, where you can just introduce harm at any time or the, the dynamics of who's privileged over who and in what circumstances all in flux. It just becomes almost impossible, I think, to land satire that's going to be universally appreciated. And social media is fueling a resurgence in a very old form of satire. I think social media is interesting because sort of the business model is outrage, isn't it? It's engagement, marketing through engagement. I mean, the best way to measure engagement is through conflict. So it, it, well, it just speeds everything up, I think. So you have a situation where you're almost incentivized to read things in bad faith and then share your take and be rewarded for that take. 
again, it's a it's a it's a classic old fashioned form of satire that I think is making a massive resurgence at the moment, which is satirical hoaxing, uh, which is where you stage a hoax and the satire kicks in when everyone realizes after they've believed it for a while or or you can sort of the satire isn't actually in the artifact itself. It's in the reactions to it. Which, which in the 18th century, Jonathan Swift did an amazing version of this where he was really not keen on a guy called uh, John Partridge who wrote Almanacs. And Jonathan Swift was like, that's ridiculous. He can't know what's going to happen next year. He's making a lot of money from this. It's foolish. So what he did is he printed a pamphlet announcing that John Partridge had died. Um, <laughs> and it, it was quite rapidly circulated. John Partridge got home one day, found out that everyone thought he was dead. So immediately rushed out a pamphlet saying, I'm not dead, that's a horrible joke. To which Jonathan Swift released another one saying, whoever wrote this pamphlet saying John Partridge isn't dead, that's just the most tasteless thing I've ever seen. Why would you, why would you upset his family by making them think he's alive? And this went on for ages. But that is the sort of thing that happens in social media, isn't it? What do you think about the idea of memes as modern satire? I think it's interesting because memes create a means by which pretty much anyone can enact satire it's a bit like the satire and comedy question like not all memes are satirical but they can be and often and i don't think sometimes when people make memes they're thinking aha this is going to be an amazing piece of satire but the fundamental aspects of satire exaggeration or exaggeration through things like bathos which is where the high is brought low or incongruity where there's a massive contrast between the word and the image those are stock satirical devices yeah so it democratizes the ability to do satire in a really interesting way it, but it also, again, coming back to social, I was going to say, like, not, not all the examples of satire that I think are great are on social media, but one of the things that social media does, it makes that process quite a bit competitive, though, doesn't it? And I think that has a potentially negative effect. So when something bad happens, something awful is announced, if the impulse is, how can I make a really successful meme about this that's going to get thousands of free tweets and make me famous for 15 minutes, that sort of takes over from the bit where you're like, oh God, that's terrible. What can we do about it? So, I mean, there's, there's that. But then the medium is the message. So if you've, if you've come up with a really good meme that is genuinely doing satirical work and it's rapidly disseminated, then you've maybe had you know, more effect than Juvenal would have had in his day. So it's interesting and definitely think that memes can be satire. And in a society surrounded by smartphones and social media, satire is becoming a lot less risky. Robert Fidian. I think at the moment it probably is because there's a camera everywhere and we're certainly exceedingly anxious about race. Yeah, not, not with bad cause. I'm not saying we, you know, I'm not saying bring back good old racist satire. That's not my argument. But, but that is a, a current sensitivity that is making and also privilege that's making people cautious in ways that occasionally gets accused of being woke. And it seems to me that we are in relative, compared to a few decades ago, in a relatively Puritan period where righteousness is something that people are very keen to, to seize from all directions on the political spectrum. It's not just audiences that are forcing satire to evolve, though. Some of the world's most powerful people now appear to be immune. It doesn't matter that uh, we were all doing social distancing. It doesn't matter that I'm fit as a butcher's dog, feel great. Uh, so many people do in my circumstances. You, call, you have nationalists, you have globalists. I also love the world. 
And I don't mind helping the world, but we have to straighten out our country first. We have a lot of problems. I said earlier that satire's a shaming mechanism, and if you refuse shame, it doesn't work very well. And the people who just wade through and ignore the criticism, and Trump is the extreme example of it, but most successful politicians, Boris Johnson in the UK, seems particularly to work with populist politicians. You know, they either play up to it a bit or they just ignore it. And so Trump in particular returned the anger of the satirists just with his own anger. And there wasn't the engagement, there wasn't the, the deal uh, that he'd take it seriously. This new response is forcing satirists to take another tack. The exaggeration, which is a fundamental part of the satirical manoeuvre, how do you exaggerate something that is too that is already exaggerated? And I think the way to do it is to go the opposite way. So the satire would arise from the reality rather than the exaggeration, because they've already provided the exaggeration. So trying to, which is interesting, because in England, a lot of our biggest satirists have formed this company called Led by Donkeys. And these are people who are involved in, you know, some of the most clearest examples of satire in the 90s and 2000s, like Brass Eye in the day to day. And they're not doing exaggeration anymore. They're just they put up billboards where they put the put actual facts. And just recently, they played a video outside of Parliament where they went through the details of the police's reluctance to investigate the party at Downing Street, even though there was so much evidence. So they've gone the other way. Instead of doing exaggeration, they've gone towards reality sort of historically satire has been driven by exaggeration and indignation and those two things have become pretty much universal traits in the discourse as they say outrage culture and exaggeration and that literalism i was talking about earlier but i think the challenge is just to do satire in different ways so i mean i think something that i've noted noticed recently is a resurgence of of more sort of classical forms of satire. So like Amando Iannucci has just released a mock epic poem called Pandemonium. It's an account of what happened in the UK during the pandemic, but in the style of Paradise Lost. But that's exactly what Alexander Pope was doing. It's exactly what the 18th century satirist was doing. I just read a, a, a novel recently called Dead Souls by Sam Rivieri, which is a very classical form, a satirical novel on the publishing industry, particularly the creative arts. And the way it works is, yeah, aesthetically really close, like it's doing all of the things you'd expect. And I wonder if those things that are away from social media that are sort of more form-based are where a, a kind of purer satire and perhaps more effective in that climate type of satire is existing. All that being said, in the last three years, there have been so many films, mainstream films that have come out of the cinema that have been works of satire. Parasite was a global hit, wasn't it? That was a satirical film. The stuff that Adam McKay is doing, I think, is really interesting. So he's just got a film coming out next week called Don't Look Up, and the film he did, Vice, where they're biopics or they're, they're, they're sort of dramatizations of historical moments, but done in a satirical way. And they're not like mainstream hits, massive audiences, winning awards. But I think what the success of these things speaks to and the existence of those texts I was just talking about is that there's an enormous appetite for satire but it's not necessarily the 20% of people that are on Twitter. It's everybody else. So I think satire has a massive audience and, and will thrive, but we might not necessarily see that on social media. It's not just those in power who are making it harder for satire to land as heavily as it used to. Craig Quartermain is a comedian who often talks about race and politics. 
His main concern for satire's future is that audiences are becoming less willing to listen. Uh, Edwina, I'm in a bit of a crisis at the moment where I actually had a really funny conversation about this where I just turned 40. I am an Indigenous comedian in Australia who does political material in a country that isn't ready or comfortable to have those sort of conversations, doesn't have enough of a social conscious or a developed comedy bone uh, enough to kind of appreciate it or at least uh, comprehend it. So I'm having a bit of a crisis of uh, relevance at the moment. As you say, you talk about race, you talk about being an Indigenous man in Australia, and you feel like people aren't ready to talk about that. How has people's tolerance for offence changed in that time, if at all? I mean, there's so many different um, levels to this discussion. They're ready for you to talk about race as long as you do it in a way that it's comfortable for them. You know, the real obvious, nothing really nuanced, especially in Australia. As far as offence goes, I was having this discussion. It's been going for a while. There, I'm always paranoid about anybody that says they can't say anything anymore. I've but my first kind of question is, what do you want to say? <laughs> What's this thing? If you go back 20 years ago, there were people that made mansions out of really racist songs and stuff like that. I'm kind of glad they don't have a revenue stream anymore. If I get on stage, anybody that's seen me perform, the minute the crowd is, acts reluctant, I'm, that makes me go harder and angrier. Because, I don't know, there's something about the discomfort are you genuinely uh, uncomfortable or are you thinking what you've heard is offensive if you're genuinely offended great speak up absolutely you shouldn't have to put up with that sort of stuff if it's done badly but are you actually offended or are you being offended on behalf of someone else there's so many different angles to it and what do you think we stand to lose in the future if we fail to appreciate the role of satire we lose a lot of satire. We've lost a lot of accountability, especially when, you know, our political commentators are the same four white guys behind desks um, with the same writers, same producers, all on the same channel. There's not a lot of accountability there. We lose a lot of finding where the line is, you know, being having that dictated to you. That I don't like that at all. I like uh, finding it. And seeing and then having having the ability to actually discuss the topics. I mean, Bill Cosby was brought down by a comedian. Yeah, that's kind of cool. The Daily Show did a lot of great work that it was undone when Trump came in. Uh, but there is a, a lot of um, benefit to allowing comedians to have a go. I'm not saying let anybody say whatever they want if they want it to be offensive. The joke has to be good. But um, you do need to allow people to be mocked and made fun of, the left, the right, everybody should be up for it. We live in a time where comedians are held more accountable than the politicians they're talking about. That's where we are right now. People like an easy win on the internet as opposed to genuine discussion and accountability and our amazing journalists are all being hamstrung at the moment <laughs> through litigation and all that. So at least we've still got the protection of satire. Professor Robert Fidian says there's one major thing we can do to protect satire's power for the future. Not be too quick to take offence. Just because you don't like what something's saying, don't be in too big a hurry to condemn it. And don't assume that because you don't find something funny, someone else won't find it funny. 
what do you think we stand to lose if comedy no longer pushes those boundaries? Well, I think if comedy and satire no longer push those boundaries, the knaves will have a field day. Historically, satire calls out knaves and fools, and, and the fools are, are people who are sort of the butts of jokes and don't understand their place in the world, whereas the knaves are the guys who are, are manipulating the world and trying to get away with things. And it seems to me that we need public mechanisms for that, unless everyone promises to behave really well towards each other forever. Um, and I, I'm not, you know, if that happens, good, but I'm not exactly expecting it any time soon. Let's not hold our breath on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Robert Fidian from Flinders University leaving us with that final thought. I'm Edwina Stolt. This has been Future Tense. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.